Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Saturday Burnt Toast and Coffee Show with apologist William Hemsworth on the Four Persons Network. William is passionate about teaching the faith. He is a convert that attended a Baptist seminary. He is a father and a catechist that will encourage you to live the faith, evangelize, and defend it. To call into the show, the number is 515-602-9655. Once again, the phone number to call into the show is 515-602-9655. Ladies and gentlemen, William Hemsworth. Good morning, everyone. I hope everyone is doing well out there. My name is William Hemsworth. It is great to be with you all on another episode of the Burnt Toast and Coffee Show. Really excited for today's show. Uh, a couple reasons. Well, we're gonna let me give you the format of today's show real quick. We're gonna talk about the saint of the day, and they're gonna we're gonna hop in because I had a very special guest. You see, earlier this week. I got on a Skype call with my friend Gary Machuda um, to talk about his new book, The Gospel Truth, how we can know what Jesus taught. And Gary is going to give us a lot of insight about the Gospels, how we can know that they are, they contain the true teaching of Christ. Now, Gary is, um, I'm honored to call Gary a friend. Um, when I started getting into the apologetics game, if you will, um, I had Gary was the first email I sent to be a guest on my YouTube channel, The Bible Catholic. And he was excited. He was more than willing to uh, come on my show. And the reason I wanted Gary to come on my show um, was because as a Protestant, I was a huge fan of James White. Um, James White had a big influence on me. And on YouTube, I came across a debate that Gary had with James White about the Deuterocanon, and it opened up my eyes to the uh, validity of the Deuterocanon. And so um, I sent Gary an email. He responded back, and to my surprise, he asked me to be a guest on his hands-on apologetics radio show um, just in that second email. And, uh, and that was three or four years ago. And pretty much since then, I've been a, a regular guest on Gary's show. Um, very excited to be a guest on them. I'm going to be a guest on there later on this week, um, on July 5th, actually. We're going to talk about uh, the book of Jeremiah a little bit. But Gary is always, um, he's a wealth of knowledge. He is truly a gift to the church. And so I'm excited for you to hear the interview um, that I had with them um, a couple days ago. And so even though I recorded a couple days ago, you're going to hear it for the first time here. And so uh, very exciting stuff. But before we get to that, let's get to our saint of the day. Our saint of the day today is Saint Junipero Serra. Um, and so in 1776, you know, the American Revolution was happening um, but there was another part of the United States, well, future United States, California. That's when uh, Junipero Serra founded the mission in San Juan Capistrano. 
and San Juan was the seventh of nine missions established under his direction. So he was born in Spain. He was born in um, on the island of Mallorca, and he entered the Franciscan order taking the name of St. Francis' childlike companion, brother, Juniper. And it sounds like Juniper, okay, if you, if you want to go into English. It's J-U-N-I-P-E-R. So at the age of 35, he spent most of his time in the classroom uh, as a student of theology and then as a professor. And he became very famous for his preaching, but he gave it all up to follow his call in the missionary work. So you heard about what uh, St. Francis Solano was doing in South America, and so he wanted to convert people in the New World. And so he arrived by ship at Veracruz, Mexico, and he and his companion walked 250 miles to Mexico City. So on the, on the, on the way to that journey, um, St. Junipero's leg, left leg became infected because of an insect bite. And it would be something he would deal with the rest of his life. And sometime it was, sometimes it was life-threatening. For 18 years, he worked in central Mexico and in the Baja Peninsula. And he became uh, president of the missions there. Um, so Charles III of Spain ordered an expedition to beat Russia to the new territory of Alaska. All right. And so the last two conquistadors, one military and one spiritual, begin their quest up to this land of Alaska. The first mission founded after the 900-mile journey north was San Diego in 1769. And I was honored about four, five years ago to attend Mass there. It's still a functioning parish. It's fantastic. If you ever get a chance to visit it, please do. Um, so that year in 1769, there was a shortage of food, and it almost canceled the expedition. I mean, after all, you need food for this long journey. But he vowed to stay with the local people. And so uh, St. Junipero and another friar began a novena in preparation for St. Joseph's Day on March 19th, which was the day that they were supposed to leave. And on that day, a relief ship arrived for them. And he found that a lot of missions, um, other missions like uh, Monterey and Carmel in 1770, San Antonio and San Gabriel in 1771, San Luis Obispo in 1772, San Francisco and San Juan Capistrano in 1776, Santa Clara in 1777, um, San Buenaventura in 1789. And then there were 12 more missions founded after Juno Perceto's death. So, he did a lot to evangelize and to bring the gospel uh, to the people in the new world. And we are all indebted uh, for him. Um, he baptized over 6,000 people and confirmed 5,000. And wow, he, he, was, um, he, was, he was canonized by Pope Francis on September 23rd, 2015. So St. Junipero Cerro. Uh, pray for us. So, my friends, what I want to do now is I'm going to play the interview. We're going to hear from our friend uh, Gary Machuda. Um, so, if you don't know who Gary Machuda is, I could easily tell you to do a Google search, but check out his website, handsonapologetics.com and garymachuda.com. 
Gary has done so much work in defending the canonicity of the Deuterocanon. canon. Um, he has a great YouTube channel called Apocrypha Apocalypse, where that's all he does is actually discusses the Deuterocanon and why they are scripture. Um, really, he's, he's doing a lot of great work out there. And so without any further ado, here is my interview with my buddy, Gary Machuda. And give it just a couple seconds to load here. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the program. My name is William Hemsworth. Great to be with you. I know it's been a while since I put any uh, interview on this channel, but have a good one for you today. Our friend Gary Machuda is back. Of course, you know Gary. He has the radio show Hands-On Apologetics on Virgin Most Powerful Radio, Monday through Friday. He's the author of Why Catholic Bibles Are Bigger, Case for the Deuterocanon, Revolt Against Reality, and his new one, The Gospel Truth, How We Can Know What Christ Taught. Gary, welcome back to the show. How you been? I've uh, been great. Can't complain. Up here in the smoky north, uh, the north, or actually Midwest, we're getting a lot of, uh, I guess, smoke or haze from Canada. From those fires uh, up there? Yeah. So I, I bet you, you're wishing you had some smoke or haze to break the sunlight for your 100-plus uh, degree heat down there. No, right now we are just praying for rain. And actually, I was driving by a Lutheran church yesterday, and that was the sign on on the further <laughs> sign. Was just pray for rain. That was it. No advertising of services. Just pray for rain. That's all it was. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so before we get into your book, here you've been kind of busy. I mean, you, you had Revolt Against Reality, then you had the audio version of it, which was great. Everyone needs to check that out. What have, What have you been up to lately? You've been doing a lot with your YouTube channel and all that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Apocrypha Apocalypse uh, with Kenny, uh, excuse me, Kenny, uh, with uh, William Albrecht and David Zavaris uh, going into issues of those seven Old Testament books that are in Catholic and Orthodox Bibles, but not Protestant Bibles. Um, I've actually been working on, and I'm hopefully, God willing, it'll actually get published. I've been writing on academic level articles on the Dario Canon. So I, I recently finished one on Josephus. And it may be uh, going into a journal uh, as soon as a month from now. So Great. Yeah. yeah. So that's uh, that in the show and interviewing great people like you on my show. So it's all been good. Doing busy, but uh, it's all good busy. All right. Good deal. Well, again, thanks for coming on. So the book, The Gospel Truth. Uh, so why this book and why now? Yeah. Well, you know, my books, I <laughs> – I'm always, I'm a research nerd, right? I'm a geek. And uh, so I'm always finding things and coming up with, uh, you know, interesting uh, tidbits and so on. And I store those away in my memory files. And uh, eventually I, I have so much material. It's like I need to write a book to organize it so I can actually refer to it rather than forget about all this stuff. But this is something I've been wanting to do for a while. Um you know, William, I think we're to the point where at least society here in North America and the United States, um, we've moved past atheism to a kind of um, uh, hazy agnosticism. Not only do people not believe in God, but they, they're not even familiar with Jesus, right, in the Gospels. Uh, you know, whenever they hear Jesus' name, it's usually a swear word or, you know, something like that in, in in a movie. And so 
um, there's a lot of people out there that are starting really from a little bit below ground zero. So I wanted to write a book that could introduce them to, uh, you know, get the, first get them to wonder about Jesus, who he is and why he's important, and then start kind of an investigation and walk them through uh, whether, like, the records we have about Jesus. Could it be legendary? Could it be fiction? Could it have been fabricated? Uh, was it a hoax? Do the Gospels tell the truth? And then, and then I carry it forward to show that we can also answer other questions like which books belong in the Bible or what's the true meaning of Scripture. And uh, hopefully, you know, my book does that. It, it kind of walks you from soup to nuts. So by the time you're done, you have a, a really good, robust understanding of that. We Wow, we really do have a pretty firm grasp about what Jesus said and did. Right. Now, within the Christian community, I think, unfortunately, we've kind of taken the Gospels for granted, like they've always been there. But what are the Gospels from, like, a historical viewpoint? Yeah, well, um, that's funny because in academia, it's changed its mind over years. Uh, for a long time, it was thought, and I mean, like, back in the 1800s, 1900s, early 1900s, it was thought to, that these were legendary accounts, kind of oral traditions like you find in other cultures. And uh, basically cultural myths. And scholarship has moved on beyond that. And they, they said, no, if you compare the Gospels with other writings of the time, you find out that it's it's actually history and actually uh, it's more of a contemporary biography. That's really the genre. So um, right there that tells you that, okay, this purports to be writing history, but then that asks, that opens up a whole bunch of other questions. Like, okay, it purports to be writing history, but does it actually written, write history? And this is actually this is another reason, William, why I wrote this book, is there's a lot of really great books written by uh, Protestants, by evangelicals, defending the Gospels. And what they usually do is they will say, okay, here's the Gospels, what they say, and then we look at extra biblical sources. We see that they reflect the same thing, so it's generally accurate. And then they'll go into the date of the Gospels, that they're written very close to the time of Jesus, so they're they're in the position to accurately report stuff. And then whether or not our text that we have today is identical to the original. But um, because it's written by Protestants and evangelicals, there's a huge blind spot. And I've noticed this on atheistic uh, forums. <clears throat> that the atheists pose some really good questions that the evangelical approach doesn't do or, or kind of ignores. And uh, uh, one, I think, is could the Gospels, are they truthful? How do we know that they're truthful? Now, the evangelical approach does take you a little bit in that direction, but I think there's a much more robust case that could be made. And the other thing is like, okay, fine, even if the text we have is identical to the original, and it's truthful, even if we can see that. Uh, how, how do you know what the true interpretation or true meaning of the text is? Because it's almost like ink blots. You know, every group has their own interpretation of things. And so even if you're able to establish all that, you've really done nothing because it's up to each individual to come up with however they interpret it. So, um, and, I, and the reason why they have this blind spot William, is I think Protestantism can't lend credence to the historic church. 
Okay. Because if to do so, you're straying into tradition territory. And if you start saying sacred tradition is reliable, then you're saying the Bible alone isn't sufficient, and you start ending up as Catholics, right? Right. So, and, and actually, in high-end scholarship today, what you're finding is that Protestant scholars are slowly kind of incorporating early church fathers and start, starting to treat the early, the first Christian community as a real historic entity, right, in order to answer these objections. But that's as far as they go. So it's very thin, you know. And so what I do, <clears throat> I try to treat the subject like, yeah, there really is a community, you know, a real historic community that persists throughout history. And, and I draw out all the implications. Of it. <clears throat> oh, it's all good. No worries. Now, in the first, yeah, I'm saying in the first chapter, and you kind of touch on this a second ago. You have we have all these non-Christian sources um, talking about Jesus. Why is that important for us today? Because I think that's lost on us a little bit. Yeah, um, well, it's, Jesus is a really remarkable figure. If you just, without even looking at the Gospels, just looking at extra biblical stuff, you have here a first-century Jewish rabbi who hangs around in Judea, which is kind of like the outskirts of the empire, right? Mm-hmm. And somehow or other, this Jewish rabbi is able to introduce a faith that revolutionizes society. It revolutionizes uh, all of Western civilization. It creates Western civilization. Right. It brings about modern science. It does all these revolutions of thought that's based on the teaching of this rabbi. Um, and then you have the church that's existed for 2,000 years with no ex- no explanation. And then you throw on top of it, and this is how I start the book. Maybe this is a spoiler, so spoiler alert. You have this prophecy that even the pagans were aware of, that there would be someone coming from Judea who would rise and become the governor of the entire world. Wow. You know, And uh, so Jews saw that. In fact, that's why you have all these messiahs who pop up. We read about that in Acts, right? Gamaliel mentions them. Um, and the pagans, too. The pagans thought, well, this must be the emperor uh, uh, Vespasian or Titus because they conquered Jerusalem. Um, but the fact is, you know, today, if you ask a person on the street, you ever hear of Vespasian? They wouldn't have a clue what you're talking about. Or Titus. In fact, some people, you'd probably say, you ever hear of the Roman Empire? Eh, not really. What is it? You know, that's all gone. But if you ask, do you know where a Catholic church is? Or do you know Jesus? Have you ever heard of Jesus before? That will ring a bell, you know, even right. though it might just be a swear word or something. They've heard of him, right? Right. So it's like, so what's so big about this Jewish rabbi 2,000 years ago that created all of this, you know? And I just wanted the reader to get to the point where it gives them a huh, you know. It's like, huh, that is weird, you know. And then throughout the book, I try to make them repeat, huh, that's interesting. That's, huh, why why is that so? Right. And I think you do a lot of that throughout the book. And in what in one of the one of the interesting things I thought of the book, you know, we kind of take for granted. Okay, the Gospels were written in Greek. But you talk about the Hebrew and Aramaic undertones. So why why are those important for us to understand? What are the implications for us today of, of that? 
Yeah, that's a loaded question there. I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's it's great. Um, There's lots of um, things. If you know something about the New Testament, you know the earliest manuscripts we have are all in Greek. And what's interesting with the Greek is that if you read the Greek, there's large portions of the New Testament that doesn't speak Greek. It speaks something like Aramaic or Hebrew in the Greek tongue, you know? And uh, we're familiar with, you know, words that are brought directly into the Greek, like Abba, you know, that's a, that's a Hebrew word, it's not Greek. Or, uh, you know, Jesus is uh, Eli, Eli, Labaksanatani, right? Um, that's Aramaic. But, uh, but there's other things that are hidden underneath the Greek, because it, it, we can see it, it sounds like it. And in some cases, we can actually identify what the... The source, which was a Hebrew or Aramaic source, actually says. So one thing this does is it shows that the the dating for the Greek manuscripts is actually a later date because they're relying on information that was earlier than themselves in which they translated into Greek, right? So uh, you take the evangelical approach, it comes very close to the time of Christ, a lot closer than uh, pagan histories and so on and so forth. But then you factor in the pre-canonical material that's hidden under this. That brings you even closer to the time of Christ, which opens up an even bigger probability that at least they were in the position to accurately record what went on. The other thing, too, uh, William, and uh, you know, I dedicate some good uh, sections of the book to, is not only that, but it appears that this underlying Hebrew or, or Aramaic stuff, some of it's formatted for accurate recall. It has little devices in it in order to memorize, right? And you see that not only with those those little bits that we can make out from the Greek, but you see it in the Greek itself. In fact, not only is it one or two or three layers of what I call pneumatic formatting, but it's multiple layers. It's shot throughout the Gospels. And that has lots of implications, too, because if this is a fabrication or a hoax or a legend, why would you go through all the trouble formatting the, what Jesus said and taught in such a way that it could be accurately recalled, right? Why do the formatting? And here's something even more mysterious that I raised in my book, if you're going to do a hoax and you're going to over-engineer and put the formatting in, why would you hide it, or at least some of it, under the Greek, right? So that the original readers wouldn't even see it, you know? In other words, if this is a fabrication, it's the most over, over-engineered fabrication on the planet. It, it, it staggers the imagination that someone would go through all that trouble to do all these memory devices and so on. Right, and to take you back on that, you also discuss the the dare to verify. Yeah. So, I mean, why is that important when it comes to the Gospels as well? Yeah, um, well, uh, just think about it. I, I use this analogy of uh, going to a bank. You go to a bank with a check for five, ten bucks. They just run it through the machine to give you your money. No problem, right? You come to the bank with a check for $100,000 million dollars. You're going to have to come inside. You're going to have to show identification. Wait They're five days. Call. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be a long process for verification. Why? Because the bank has a risk 
that if this bounces and they give you the money, they're out that amount of money, you know, a million dollars. They could be out of business. So they're going to make sure they're going to get the money before they give you a cent, right? And so if you look at the Gospels, what you find is the Gospels write not one or two, but dozens and dozens of checks that are like super high amounts. In other words, they're making claims so bold that, and the implications of those claims are so great that it's what I call a dare to verify. Or actually, it's like a double dog dare to verify, right? Because think about it. Whether you're Jew or a Gentile, to become a Christian at that time would have been it would it's not a personal choice, right? It's it would affect your relationship with your family, affect your relationship with the government. It would affect uh, maybe your place of work. It could affect you, your health. You could be beaten. You could be imprisoned. You could be killed, right? Uh, there's a lot of risk there, not to mention the possibility that uh, you're following a false prophet that's condemned in the Bible, so you'd be cursed by God, you know? Um, and then and then the fun part, if that isn't fun enough, right? So I go through and show all these dare to verifies. You actually have things in the New Testament that actually does kind of dare you to verify, and I show you those, and I show you that, yeah, they were actually were, were verified. We know of individuals that did that. Now, over the years, there's been groups like the Jesus Seminar, for example, who are trying to uncover, you know, the historic Jesus, what Jesus really said, what Jesus taught. How can we be confident that what we have in the Gospels is actually what Jesus said and taught? Again, yeah. another loaded question. <laughs> yeah. Well, you buy the book, and that's one way. You Absolutely. Can... And, and also some other books, too. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to that. Uh, I think... You don't even have to get into biblical criticism or higher, so-called higher criticism. I think my approach is very um, common sense and just plain old logical, right? Um, and I think it avoids all the traps of arguing about, okay, what's the criteria for criticism? You know, is, is that a valid criteria? You know, uh, stuff like that. I, I think just looking at the Gospels, I think you're faced with two possibilities. Either the Gospels were written in a culture that used this kind of formatting. It did use the formatting. People did verify that it did happen, and uh, therefore it did happen. It's true, right? Versus a really convoluted, uh, over-engineered hoax that um, apparently tries to make a false Christ that people, uh, a type of Christ that most people would lose a lot if they bought into the fabrication. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like so convoluted, I think it's hands down the first and not the latter. Okay. Does that help? I mean, the Jesus seminar thing is, uh, I mean, there's a lot of different uh, facets to it, but. No, absolutely. And like I said, it was it's a it's a big question and I know books have been, books alone have been written on that question as well. Yeah. So in the early church, so we have four gospels, well, canonical gospels now. We can open up our Bible, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But there were other books in the early church that had the title of gospel. How do we know that we have the correct ones? Yeah. Um very important question. Um 
And it, and uh, the methodology that I give in the book is the same methodology you would use to establish how do we know that our copies of the New Testament correspond to the original. And um, that methodology that non-Catholics accept, uh, Protestants, you know, they would accept that hands down because they use it. Uh, you could use that same methodology in a, a whole bunch of different ways, and that's why I do in my book. So not only can you guarantee the text is identical, but you can identify how do we know the proper interpretation of the text. You can also identify what's the proper contents of sacred scripture, namely the canon, which books, how do we know which ones belong and which ones don't. Uh, it's like a multifaceted uh, approach. Um, and I, I do some thought experiments in the book, you know, um, and I, I think it's very commonsensical. In fact, I was talking to our friend uh, Pat Flynn the other day, and he said his, uh, not, I think his nine-year-old, if I remember correctly, had a qu- basically the question of, Dad, how do we know that this is true, right? And so he asked me, well, how would you explain it to a nine-year-old? And it's it's very easy. You know, it's just what you got to do is this thought experiment. And basically it's it's, okay, if you were in a church with the Apostle John, and the Apostle John is reading from his own gospel, and he's preaching on John 6, the bread of life discourse, okay, um, how would you know whether that was what Jesus actually meant? Like if he said, the bread of life discourse is about the Eucharist, how could you verify that, right? And you think about, it, well, yeah, there's lots of ways you could verify it. First, you could talk to John and say, hey, did Jesus really say this? And he could say, yeah, he instructed us, and so on and so forth. And, of course, John wrote his own gospel, so he should know right. what it means. <laughs> Plus, he has the Holy Spirit. But even then, uh, you could ask the congregation who maybe they knew Jesus, and maybe some of them overheard his instructions or something. Um, or, and then if you're still not satisfied, you're still skeptical, you can go to Peter's church or James' church or, you know, the other apostles and ask them the question, is this what Jesus meant when he said this? And if they all give essentially the same answer, then that shows that this multiple attestation from different sources all collide or all um, all come into a single, you know, answer, right? And that single answer has to be a common source, Okay. And then you say, okay, that's fine in the first century, but what about the next generation? So, okay, let's go in a time machine. One generation later, we're in Ignatius of Antioch's church, okay? And he's preaching on John. And he says, this is about the Eucharist. How can you tell? Ask him, where did you get it? Well, I heard John. John told me this is the meaning, okay? Um, And, by the way, Ignatius is the, the second bishop, right? It's Peter. And then uh, another bishop and then him. So you could go to the congregation and say, hey, did Ignatius' predecessor, did he ever preach on this? What did he preach, right? And if they were there and they're old enough to know, they would tell you, and you should. they should all be in agreement. And again, if you're even more skeptical, you could look at the liturgy, you could look at the songs, you know, see if there's some clues there that were sung in that church for a while. But you can go to other churches that were made by the apostles, Right to uh, one of, uh, like, some other church and ask them and ask the congregants. And again, if they all kind of cohere to a single point, then you know that's the source. And then you could go back one more generation, one more generation. 
And you know what's curious, William, is the further you go back in time away from Jesus, it actually becomes easier and easier to identify innovations because you have a lot more data points you could check, right? Um, so if someone changes it and says, well, John 6 actually means something other than the Eucharist, then we would expect to find that later in history, right? It would be found, it would start only in one particular location. It may spread from there, but it starts in one location. And it'll always be the minority, right? Right. And that's essentially St. Vincent of Lorenz canon, right? Antiquity, ubiquity, and consensus. Um, and so that's kind of what we do with manuscripts. We look for the oldest manuscripts. We look for uh, manuscripts from different areas. And we look for a consensus, right? And that gives you a, a pretty good indication of what the original read. Well, it can also be used for meaning. It could be used for the canon. It could be all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Very good. So yeah. what feedback have you received on the book so far? Uh, so far, it's been very positive. Um, <laughs> I, I was talking to you before we started recording. Uh, I was just recently at the St. Paul Center and uh, in Steubenville, Ohio, Scott Hans outfit, and did an interview with Scott. Scott loved it. So <laughs> that made my day. If, if he's the only person on the planet that loves the book, then uh, then I feel like I could die in peace, right? <laughs> Uh, I was reading it. I was reading it last night in preparation for this, and I'm like, "This is good stuff. This is good stuff." My wife's like, "What's good?" And I start talking to her about it, and she just walks away because she she's like, "Okay, that's above my." She's not she's not a theology nerd like me, so I'm like, "Yeah." But but I know if she were to sit down and read it, um, it's a very relatable book. It's um, but did, did you have that in mind when you when you wrote it? Was just to get, I don't want to say service level, but make sure it's accessible for everyone? Yeah, I try to the best okay. I can, right? Um, I, what I presume was the reader was somebody who is not Christian, that's not familiar with Jesus, okay. but has heard, you know, all sorts of myths and legends about the, the Gospels and and try to take it from zero to, you know, right. okay. where you feel very solid. Yeah. Um, yeah, in fact, uh, most of the stuff in my book, has been things that I've been using in apologetics for years. Okay. So when you say that people like the book, well, uh, since the book just recently came out, uh, I could defer to all the other times I've used it one-on-one. -on -one, and generally, people found it very helpful, very illuminating. All right. Now, where can we get the book? Uh, you can get it at stpaulcenter.com. That's stpaulcenter, all one word, dot com. Great. Or Amazon, I think. It is on Amazon. I did see it there. But again, go to the St. Paul Center, support that great apostolate. Gary, thanks so much for coming on and talking to us about your book. It's a great book. I recommend everyone go check it out. Anything else you want to add before I let you go to enjoy your evening? Um, yeah, well, I, you know, I think even if the uh, reliability or the veracity of the Gospels isn't your number one concern, and you're just a person that loves Scripture, I think it's it's going to change the way you read scripture and i think you'll really appreciate it because uh you'll find out that some of the times you read scripture and you just figure it's bibleese well that's how they talked back then there is actually a reason for that so i think just the average bible student would also appreciate it as well so yeah so hey i i appreciate you having me on the program and uh I'm glad you you like the book oh yeah really enjoying it and um 
I, like I said, recommend everyone get it. I, I really believe that if everyone were to pick it up, they would have no issue understanding what you're talking about, and they'll grow in their faith and in their apologetics work with defending what the Gospels are. So uh, did yeah. a great service for all of us on this one. So thank you. Well, thanks. Thank you. <laughs> all right. And what, oh, where, where can we check out your stuff, like your website and all, all that? Oh, uh, handsonapologetics.com. That's my home site. And then there's uh, garymachuda.com that has uh, my seminars, MP3 type deals, and also books. Good deal. So check those out, everyone. GaryMatuda.com and HandsOnApologetics.com. And check out Gary's show, Hands On Apologetics on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Well, thanks again, Gary. God bless for coming on. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you. God bless you as well. All right, everyone. There's my interview with my good friend, Gary Machuda. Hope you all took something away from it. Um, the Gospels. There's four Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why just those four? You know, every year around Easter, there's all these articles saying this lost gospel that the church doesn't want you to know about. No, the church knew about all of those. Church, through the work of the Holy Spirit, said they are not authentic. The four we have now are authentic. And that's what Gary goes into in this book. He goes into how to defend the gospels, how their ancient biographies, uh, the not the historical accounts of Jesus outside of the Bible. There's a lot of great stuff in that book. And again, hope you guys enjoyed it. Hope you learned something from this interview with Gary Machuda and uh, support Gary and all of his work. He's doing a great work uh, for all of us and trying to get more interviews like this lined up for burnt toast and coffee. So this is one of them. We'll try to get more going. So anyway, God bless you all. Have a great day and keep defending the faith. Read scripture, pray daily, and evangelize. That's what Jesus asked us to do. All right. God bless you all. Take care.